Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H brighton.org. Morning, church. It's good to be back with you. Uh, I was out of town for a little bit, and then my daughter had a uh, scary medical episode with the seizure. And so I thank you for praying for our family. She is better. And I want to also say thank you to uh, Kyle, our ministry associate, for preaching. It was planned for him to come and teach, and I watched it online, and I'm like doing as many thumbs up and hearts as possible. He did a great job. And just know that you have several leaders and staff at this church who love you, pray for you, and Kyle is one of many. And Kyle, again, but you did a great job. Um, Now, guys, as we come to Genesis 19, you just read a lot, didn't you? You're like, bro, what in the world did I just walk into? Especially if you're a guest or new to the faith, like what in the world just happened, what we read? And so, guys, we come to this passage, we find ourselves coming to a really difficult passage. Can we all just say amen? Amen. Like, that's maybe the only thing we may agree on as a whole today is that it's really, really difficult. And, And one that often... Uh, For modern and educated and urban ears, uh, this passage is even more difficult. Even if you're a Christian, let's be real. This passage is often hard for us and we wrestle with. So today, here's what we're going to grapple with. We're going to see God's justice play out in a way that brings his righteous judgment on the entire cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, as we live in urban Boston, like this is not a fun topic, or a common topic for people to talk about. And if we're honest, guys, this passage is really challenging for many reasons, but here's just a few of why it's so hard. For many of us, when we read this, guys, it brings up challenging theological questions, doesn't it? Like it brings up, well, if God is actually loving and patient like he says he is, then why does he rain down sulfur and fire on entire cities? Like this doesn't seem very loving, right? Brings up theological questions. For others of us, it brings up scientific questions. Like, does this narrative actually reflect a real historical event? Or is this just some, like, parable that's supposed to teach us something about God? And if it is real, do we have archaeological evidence? Like, we would know if there was some sort of fire and sulfur storm on the earth, we would be able to see something, right? So where is that proof? And then for others of us, which I think brings up more of the challenge of this passage is the pressing social and cultural questions here. Questions about sex and gender and orientation and even abuse, since all of these are actually on display in this chapter. So guys, really, no matter how you slice it, Genesis 19 is just a flat out challenging passage to talk about. But listen, church, I wanna be honest with you or any guest online, if you're willing to engage though this narrative, and consider what God is actually saying inside of it. Guys, the challenge of it, it's gonna be worth it for you. It's gonna be worth it. Because today you're gonna see a God who is both extensively just, but yet exceedingly gracious. And both of these things are so key to us. In fact, that's why we titled our message today. It's about a God who is extensively just, but yet exceedingly gracious. Now, just a few disclaimers before we get started here. Guys, if you're a guest this morning, again, we are so glad that you're here today. And we want you to know that we don't just pick out difficult and controversial passages like this to talk about every week. In fact, that would be miserable for me and miserable for you. 
In fact, what we do at our church is we walk through books of the Bible and we go through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book after book. And that's what we've done so far in our journey through the book of Genesis. We've gone verse by verse. And guys, we do this because it keeps us from cherry picking certain passages and then avoiding others that ends up actually creating both theological and practical imbalance if a church just starts cherry picks passages. And guys, I love you too much to do that as a church where I just pick certain passages that I want to teach that make me feel good, that make you feel good. It'll give us an imbalanced view of God. And although it's hard for me today to stand before you and friends and neighbors and family that this passage may disagree with, guys, we've got to have a right view of God being exceedingly just and also exceedingly gracious. So here at City on a Hill, guys, we teach verse by verse through books of the Bible because why? It allows us to hear the full counsel of God's word and not some half-baked ideas cooked up by some person on the platform, right? And we, if you know me, you're like, amen, don't give me Aaron's ideas, give me the Bible's ideas, right? So guys, we just follow the next verse and we impact what's right in front of us and we will not run away as a church, which means that on some Sundays like today, we arrive at passages that are just hard and they're challenging and they are culturally controversial. And that's right where we find ourselves today in Genesis 19. So as we approach this passage, guys, we can all agree that there are some pretty sensitive topics like we've seen. Topics like, again, gender, sexuality, abuse, and even incest. Topics that are especially sensitive in our beloved city of Boston, where the cultural emphasis on these topics agree with the biblical sexual ethic in some areas, but yet greatly diverge in most others. And it's with that divergence that this passage has been actually used as a clobber chapter to beat up on or bully those who differ from the traditional biblical sexual ethic, especially Christians who have done this to bring harm to the LGBTQ plus community. And it's with that in mind that I wanna be very clear about something from the very start of this sermon. Yes, our church does believe that the Bible is the very word of God. And yes, I believe, and our church believes in the biblical traditional sexual ethic that's in the Bible, that God indeed designed marriage to be between one man and one woman for life. And that sex is a gift by God designed to be enjoyed in that exclusive context of that marriage relationship. But church, really hear me clearly here, but our church also believes that we should never use a passage of scripture to beat up on or bully another group of people or persons who may disagree with our biblical convictions. Guys, our church is called to both love and serve our neighbors, both in word and deed filled with grace and truth, no matter what a person believes in their hearts or do with their lives. So at Koa, we take the words of Jesus extremely seriously, both the words that he says about our sexuality seriously, but also the words about our responsibility to love and serve and care for our neighbors, no matter what, amen? This is the type of church that I'll pastor. This is the type of church that will always be as long as you'll have me as your pastor. Therefore, guys, we have to talk about this passage. We can't skip over it because silence or just avoiding the hard topics at hand would not be loving. In fact, silence would exclude people who need to know where truth and mercy and grace and God's design for flourishing can be found. 
So I want to start by telling you this morning that, listen, there is good news for all of us in Jesus. That whether you are straight or gay or bi or any other sexual orientation, there's not, listen, there is not a particular orientation that brings you into a relationship with God. It's only Jesus that can bring you into a relationship with God. When whoever wants to turn to who he is and what he's done. But Jesus doesn't just love you when you line up with his teaching on sexual ethics. But as Romans 5, 8 says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, God Christ died for us. So the hard news is that everyone here in this room online has fallen short of God's perfect standard of sexuality, all of us. But the good news is that anyone can be forgiven and be counted righteous before God if they turn and trust in who Christ is and what he's done for them through his death on the cross in their place. This passage then actually calls all of us out as we're gonna see. But every time as we talk about, if God calls you out, then God is gonna call you into something better for our good and his glory, amen? So with all that caveat in mind, here's what we're gonna see in today's passage. Four things we'll see, the problems of Sodom, the pervasiveness of sin, the pull that sin has, and then last, the promise of God's extensive justice and exceeding grace. And guys, I just want to give a special thanks to our network of churches. We all are preaching this sermon, and we all shared our notes with one another, and I'm grateful for these men that allowed me to share some of their notes and adapt some for our sermon today. And this is just a hard passage for us to navigate, but God is good in the midst of it. First thing we'll see here, the problems in Sodom. Let's jump in. Verse 1. The problems in Sodom. The two angels came to Sodom. And this was again after the meal that they had shared with Abraham that we saw the other week, right? They all had a meal together. The angels shared a promise about the future son for Abraham and they shared a meal together. So they came in the evening and Lot was sitting there at the gate of Sodom. And Lot is Abraham's son. And what we've been studying for the past multiple weeks is the story of God's faithfulness to Abram and Sarah. And then through them would come the Messiah, Jesus, through their lineage. And so we've been following their story, but it takes a sidestep to talk about Lot for a moment. So Lot's sitting there at the gate of the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw these angels, he rose to meet them and he bowed himself and his face to the earth. So Lot is showing great hospitality and great honor to these guests. And he says to these angels, my lords, please, would you guys turn aside and come, come to your servant's house, come to my house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you can rise up early and go on your way. But the angel's response was, no, uh, we want to spend the night right here, just in the, in the town square. But Lot pressed them strongly, basically saying, eh, guys, I don't think you want to do that. It's not the best place for you to stay right here. So they turned aside with him. They entered in Lot's house and then Lot made a feast for them and baked unleavened bread and they ate. He's showing great honor and hospitality. But we got to pause right here. We got to pause because we got to ask a question. Why did Lot press these angels strongly to not stay in the town square? Like, why did he do that? Wasn't the town square the place of provision and protection for both citizens and travelers in ancient cities? Like, that's what we know, right? It, the town square is supposed to be well lit. It's got plenty of stands for food and water. It had uh, several even city officials that were nearby to keep care and order. In fact, that's what we see Lot's job was supposed to be, that he's a city official. He's sitting in the gate of Sodom. I mean, he's supposedly watching over things. So the town square was generally supposed to be a place of provision and protection, 
But that's obviously not the case right here in Sodom. So it begs the question, right? What in the world is going on in Sodom that would warrant God's justice and Lot saying, you guys shouldn't stay in the town square? Well, Ezekiel 16 and Jude verse 7 are two sides of the same coin that answer that question. Ezekiel 16 says in verses 49 and 50, what's going on in Sodom. It says this, Behold, this was the guilt that your sister Sodom had. She and her daughters, meaning her and her people, the city of Sodom, had pride and excess of food and prosperous ease, and they did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty or conceited, and they did an abomination before me. So on one hand, this tells us that Sodom received God's justice because they were prideful. They were living in excess. They denied care and justice for the poor and the needy. Guys, this is a terrible sin. They have all this stuff, and they're letting the poor and needy just die off without any care. This is horrible. And it's at this point that actually revisionist scholars pause and say, these verses indicate the only things that were going on in Sodom and there's nothing more. But we don't get our theology from revisionist scholars. We get it from the Bible. So what we have to do is flip the coin from Ezekiel 16 and we got to flip it over to Jude 7 to see that there is absolutely more going on in Sodom that brings God's justice. Jude only has one chapter in verse 7. It says this, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example of undergoing a punishment of God of eternal fire. Now that's a lot to say. There's a lot going on here, but for the sake of time, we need to zoom in on just one word here to help us understanding what's going on from Jude verse 7. And it's the term porneia here in Greek. That might sound familiar to you. It sounds like porn or pornography. And that's what's supposed to conjure up. That's where we get that word from. It means sexual immorality. It's that word that's used here. And that word porneia is just sort of a drunk drawer term. If you guys grew up and your parents had a drawer that you just put everything in, it's got like staplers and forks and napkins and spoons, and all that. That's what the word porneia is. It's a catch-all term. It's a blanket term for any sexual action that is contrary for God's design for sex that's between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. Again, a design that all of us, including myself, have fallen short of, whether through a sexual act or through sexual lust. So what we're seeing here is that, yes, the homosexual actions that we'll see in Sodom and Gomorrah do fall under this word porneia, but there was lots of other sexual sins and sexual actions taking place in Sodom as well, as we'll see in a moment. But I want you to notice the words that I just said to you. For a moment, I want you to hear that I said the word actions here. That was the problem. I didn't say temptation and I did not say orientation, which means is that God is not condemning our orientation or our temptations, but he's calling out lust and he's calling out action on that lust which means that again, none of us in this room have a sexual orientation that is perfectly aligned with God's standard on sexual ethics. As an example, let me be really honest here. I am other sex attracted, oriented, but honestly, do you guys think that I'm holy enough to only ever be attracted to my wife, Emily? Unfortunately not. My orientation and temptations are such that I can find other women who are not my wife to be sexually attractive. And therefore I have to fight the desire 
to lust or act out on my orientation and my temptations. My orientation, my temptations are not according to God's standard. I fall under this category and so do you. But as a Christian, we are called to joyfully find our fulfillment in God's satisfying designs rather than our sexual desires. A fight that every Christian in this room knows well. I've got to choose with my orientation, my temptations to follow God's designs and not my desires because his designs will bring me life and goodness, not my desires, even though they tell me that fulfillment and satisfaction will come here. And it's at this very spot that one of my favorite speakers, Jackie Hill Perry, notes this. She says that the world needs to hear that God, what the world needs to hear is not, excuse me, what the world needs to hear is not that God can make someone straight. It's that Christ can make someone his. The biblical goal in this life, again, Christian, listen, the biblical goal in life is not heterosexuality. It's holiness. And we must remind ourselves and others that Christ is ultimately calling people to himself, not an orientation. The calling is to know Christ, love Christ, serve Christ, honor Christ, exalt Christ forever. She says, God has not come to make same-sex oriented people straight or make straight people into spouses. Christ has come to make all of us right with God through his death on the cross for us. And in making us right with God, he will satisfy us most in him. And that's good news for Aresians, she says, because for it proclaims to the world that Jesus has come so that all sinners, straight, gay, bi, anything, anyone can be forgiven of any type of sin and then be fueled to love, trust, and follow Jesus in this life and forever. Guys, this is the good news that Sodom needed to know that anyone can be loved and forgiven and feel to know God and enjoy him forever, which is more than any sexual act could ever do for them. But unfortunately, like many do, Sodom rejected God's offer of repentance and change and forgiveness. And so they continued in their blatant social sins of Ezekiel 16 and their sexual sins of Jude verse 7. Which leads us to the second thing we'll see here, which is not just the problems in Sodom, but we want to see the pervasiveness of the sins that were happening in Sodom. Just a quick pause. Are we doing okay so far? We're only 18 minutes in. I'm sweating a little bit. Are you guys okay? Yeah, this is tough. Okay, this is tough. Second point is the pervasiveness of sin here. We're, it's going to come to good news. We just got to get through the bad news first, okay? Verse four, the pervasiveness of sin. But before these angels and and Lot could lay down for bed, after they ate this meal that Lot had made graciously in his home, verse four, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, they surrounded the house. Now this passage starts to make a shift in scene and tone right here. It goes from being a happy scene at dinner to a horror scene at night all within this one verse of verse four. This scene is showing us just how pervasive the sin in Sodom really is because it says that both young and old, all the people all the way to the last man that's in the city surrounded 
the house. And now the Bible usually, just a note here, the Bible usually speaks in generalities when it describes a crowd. It may say something like, and many people in the region came to hear what Jesus was teaching or something like that, a generality. But here we see that the author goes to great lengths to show us how great and pervasive the sin in Sodom was. It says that every man in Sodom, both young and old, all the way to the last man in the city surrounded the house. And they were seeking to carry out the sins of Ezekiel 16 and Jude verse 7. Guys, this is a scary scene. Not only, though, was the sin pervasive in Sodom, but their intent, guys, was incredibly brutal. Look at verse 5. These men call out sort of with one voice and say, Where are the men who have come to you tonight, Lot? Bring them out so that we may know them. Now, guys, that phrase that we may know them was not about the town trying to get to know them relationally. This was not a kind, welcoming hospitality team that we have at our church that are greeters, that are welcoming anyone and everyone to come to our church, no matter what you believe or orientation you have, that you are welcome here. They're not gatekeepers. They want everyone to come and love and serve whoever walks through our doors. That's not what was happening here. That term, that phrase that we may know them was not a relational term. It was a sexual term. It was that the city wanted to know them sexually and actually force themselves on these guests sexually. As verse 9 indicates, they were advancing on them, intending actually to commit brutal and sexual assault. Guys, this scene is heart-wrenching. Now, tragically, though, this type of activity seemed to actually be the normative practice for Sodom. Since Lot knew it wasn't safe for his two visitors to stay in the town center because this apparently happens to visitors a lot. Even roughly 25 years prior to this moment in Genesis 13, we learned that Sodom was, quote, a wicked and immoral city. Guys, do you remember when Abraham and Lot were splitting up the land that they owned and one went closer to Sodom and Abraham had this land over here? We're learning about Sodom from that point 25 years ago. And Abram was 75 years old then, and now he's 100 now. And so sadly, not much has changed in Sodom for 25 plus years. Guys, during that day in ancient culture, sex was about power and pleasure. It was not about love and intimacy. It was used to exploit and to dominate, to get what you wanted. And as Preston Sprinkle says, what we call porneia, they called life. This is the way that Sodom lived. It was dangerous, it was abusive, and it was awful. So what we see is that the Judeo-Christian sexual ethic stands in complete contrast to this picture. The Bible teaches us that God's purpose for sex is love, not power. The Christian sex is about giving, not taking. It's about commitment, not coercion. It's about expressing love, not exerting power. Now guys, can we just be honest for a moment? And this might be a tough moment for all of us. I know it is for me even writing this. Guys, haven't some of your and my most heartbreaking moments in life revolved around a misuse of sexuality or a harm done to you sexually? Whether that be in relationships or where you put your identity or some action or lust or pornography, et cetera. 
Guys, in fact, this is where we see addiction and abuse and tons of relational conflict often take place, all revolving around a misuse of sexuality. Can we just be honest that sexuality has brought us a lot of challenge when we misuse it? And it's because of this that God wants to be gracious and merciful and bring clarity and guidance to our sexuality as a way to protect us from harm, not keep us from happiness. This is the goodness of God, is that his loving commands are to protect you from harm, not to keep you from happiness. God's sexual ethic is actually designed to promote your happiness, not hinder it. When God says no to a sexual action, it's because he says yes to a path that seeks to liberate you to joy and not limit you from it. Guys, Lot has grown up in this culture for at least the past 25 years now, and he has seen how much pain and heartbreak and cultural misunderstanding that sexuality can bring rather than a biblical one. And he's about had enough of this in this moment. Verse six and seven, it says, so in response, Lot went out of the house to the men at the entrance and he shut the door behind him with his family behind him with the angels in the room. And he says, brothers, I love how compassionate this is. He says, brothers, I beg you, do not act so wickedly. I love how gracious this moment is for Lot. Lot sees how pervasive sin has become in his neighbors and his coworkers and his family's heart. And he calls them to turn away from it and to turn to God. Guys, this is Lot's, this is God's mercy through Lot. It's God's hand doing this through Lot, seeking to offer every person in Sodom repentance and forgiveness. Do you guys see that anytime God brings justice, he brings mercy first? Do you see that? Every time God is saying, turn, turn, I want to give you forgiveness, new life. I want to give you joy. And this is what God is doing. Lot is preaching a gospel message so that God wouldn't have to bring this justice to them. Saying, brothers, I beg you, don't act this way. Which, by the way, is actually the second of three times we see God do this graciously for Sodom, calling them to turn away. The first one was actually when Abraham returned from rescuing Lot in that war against the kings. Do you remember that? Lot's living in Sodom. There's a huge king, uh, a war between like 10 kings. Sodom gets taken up. Abraham does a stealth raid in the middle of the night with like 600 dudes, goes and rescues Lot. And then Abraham meets the king of Lot or the king of Sodom out in the field. And then in that moment, Abraham is talking about how good and gracious and powerful God is in the midst of their sin. 25 years prior, God is using Abraham to preach the gospel of repentance and faith to this king who refused to share it with his people. We're seeing now today that this is the second rebuke and offer of repentance through Lot. And then third comes in verse 11, the third opportunity when the angels throw out some sort of angelic like flash grenade because <laughs> somehow in this moment there's temporary blindness that happened to men all in attempting to get them to see their sin more clearly. So God blinds them physically so they can see spiritually what's happening. But Sodom refuses these three explicit times and I guarantee you that God probably brought more. We see at least three times God is saying, turn and trust, find life in me, turn away. Then all the while people are getting abused, sexually assaulted, mistreated, the poor are dying 
and not one in that city is righteous. Do you remember that Abraham prayed? If there's one righteous, God finds no one after calling for decades of change. And so knowing that no one will turn from their sin and God has brought opportunities of years, years of offering repentance, God now steps in to bring justice and judgment to Sodom. Now, unfortunately, though, what we learn is that Lot is not a lot better than the culture that he lives in. Remember, sin in Sodom is pervasive. It touches every person, every area, and it touches Lot as well. Look at verse eight. It's a little hard for me to walk through some of this text because I have two daughters, but just Lot says in verse eight, behold, I have two daughters who have not known again sexually any man. They're not married yet, he says. Let me bring them out to you and you guys can do to them whatever you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now guys, this scene is just awful. In desperation, one commentator says, Lot offers his two unmarried daughters as substitutes. A shocking and cowardly, inexcusable act. Even if he did possibly intend to use it only as a bluff or expected his offer to be rejected, it's still sickening to our hearts for me to consider and for you to consider that he would give over his daughters sexually and have them be mistreated this way. But in verse nine, the town does respond with rejection and says, and Lot says, stand back, or excuse me, the the town says, stand back. This fellow Lot came to sojourn here and now he's become our judge. Now we're gonna deal with him worse than we would deal with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and they drew near to break the door down. Guys, this scene has turned violent. It's out of control and now it's deadly. Yet in the midst of all of this, God in his grace does something in verse 10. The angels in the form of man reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and he shuts the door. And then the angels strike them with blindness. The men who were at the entrance of the house, both great and small. And so they wore themselves out, groping at the door, trying to get in. This is a terrible scene. And again, it just shows you how pervasive sin has gotten in Sodom and why God needs to intervene. But guys, it's not again, just Sodom. Next, we'll see not just that it's pervasive in Sodom, but how sin pools in Lot's heart, in his wife's heart, in his daughter's heart. And if we're honest, guys, sin pools in our hearts. It pulls us into its destructive and pervasive orbit. And that's number three, the pool of sin the pool of sin. Verse 12, so then the men said to Lot, these angels say to Lot, have you guys have any other people here? Like, do you have sons-in-laws or daughters or anyone that you have in the city? Bring them out of this place. You've got to bring them out. Verse 13, for we're about to destroy this city because the outcry against this people has become great to the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Verse 14, so Lot went out And he said to his sons-in-laws who were about to marry his daughters, he says, guys, get up, get out of the place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But it seemed to his son-in-laws though, that he was just joking, he was was jesting. And so as morning dawned, verse 15, the angels urged Lot and saying, Lot, you gotta get up, man. Go, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. 
And then this verse baffles me, verse 16. But he lingered. Lot lingered. Like, why would he linger here after everything that he's just been through the night before? Guys, my bags would be packed immediately. And I'd strap every person in my family on my back and I'd crawl out on all fours and get as far away as possible if this was gonna happen to my daughters. Why is he still there? Here's why. It's why you and I are still there with sin sometimes. It's because Lot became comfortable with his life of sin in Sodom. He tolerated the practices. Although he felt a little bit uneasy about them, he never confronted them. He never talked about them. In fact, guys, Lot was in a position of authority to make change. He sat as a official in the gate. Like he became prominent in the city and he did nothing to address the people or the culture or the poverty or the rampant sexual assaults. What Lot wanted was to be rescued by God, but he still wanted to be close to his old life. So he lingered. Guys, even in verse 17 through 22, when the angels told him to escape far away to the hills, away from the city, Lot asked if he could just escape just a little bit away to the city of Zoar, which means small, not too far away. Just a small change, God, just a small change. He wanted to be taken away from judgment, but not really that far away from sin. Church, let me ask you a question. Do you ever think that way sometimes? You're grateful for the cross of Jesus and how he saved you from the penalty of sin, but you just don't want to change the place that God has called you to, which is to the hills rather than Zoar. And this is where Lot finds himself. He's being pulled in by the pervasiveness of sin. We see this in his compromise that he has with his daughters that night. We see him again when he lingers and we see him do it again when he refuses to go to the hills. He's, he's compromised. He's being pulled in by the pervasiveness of sin. Guys, we don't even just see this with Lot, but we see it with his soon-to-be son-in-laws, don't we? We see them be pulled in as well. Guys, they're so used to sin's pervasiveness that when Lot went out to tell his sons-in-laws to escape with him in verse 14, saying the Lord is about to destroy the city, they thought he was joking. They're like, oh, come on, Lot. Come on. It's not that bad here. It's not that bad that our sin would like cause like God to punish it or something. It's not a big deal. They're being pulled in to think that sin is not a big deal and that we shouldn't turn from it. Sin's pulls in Lot's and his sons-in-law's. Guys, we see it in even Lot's wife in verse 26. But Lot's wife behind him, when they were leaving the city, she looked back, even though the angels told her not to. And as they were leaving the city, what happened to her? She became a pillar of salt. Now just pause for a moment. You're like, that seems a little cartoony, Aaron. She just looks back and like she just like turns into salt. Is that really what happened? Well, one commentator says this, that Lot's wife in this moment, she, she tarried, she waited, she lingered like Lot, but more so. Why? Because Sodom was her home. She probably grew up there and she didn't want to leave the culture and her way of life behind. So her looking back was actually more of her going back. Remember the text says that she was behind Lot? I think she turned around. She just looked back. She was going back. And so after the initial raining down of fire and sulfur, while she was going back or it already happened and the gases, the sulfurous gases were now filling up the land, her body probably succumbed to this. And she died from the gases that were happening. Her body laid waste and I was passing away. It was encrusted in salt and debris and so she became like a pillar of salt. 
So this wasn't like a cartoon scene. It's she went back, the gases took her over. She lays dead and the debris and stuff takes over her body and she ends up like a pillar of salt. Guys, we see the pool of sin in Lot's wife. Guys, we even see the pool of sin in Lot's daughters. Guys, in one of the craziest passages I never thought I'd preach in my life is in verses 31 through 38. The pool on these daughters are real. The daughters feel now that all hope is lost. These girls have their, fi- their fiancés that are dead. By the way, remember how it said everyone in the city was like at the door? That means that her fiancés were at the door trying to do this sexual act as well. Her fiancés are dead. Their mom is dead. Their city's gone. Their hopes to build a family is eradicated. They're in the middle of nowhere. They're in a cave. And the culture that they grew up in begins to creep back into them. So the daughters cook up this plan to continue their family line and build a family at all costs. So they decide to get their dad super drunk. So he ends up to sleep with them. And then both of them end up getting pregnant. Like, I can't believe I said those words to you guys on a Sunday morning. Like, this is wild, guys. Verse 31 says the story. And the firstborn said to the younger, I, our dad is old and there's not a man on earth to come into us because they're all dead. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we'll lie with them that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in to lay with her father and he did not know because he was so drunk when she lay down or when she even arose. And just like we see this pattern church with the first daughter, we see it again with the second daughter the next night. Both of them end up getting pregnant by their father. And again, we see both the pool and the pervasiveness of sin. <sighs> How are we doing? <laughs> so church, it, this, this text is really not just about Sodom. It's about our own hearts as well. We've got to ask the question for ourselves. How do we avoid the pool and the pervasiveness of sin that's in our hearts and in our culture? And I've got to say, it's, it's not to say that we need to run away from culture. We don't need to run away from the idols or temptations per se that are in the city. Because listen, we can't just run away. We've got to address the matters in our heart. Because if you move or just get away and you don't address the matters in your heart, then you'll trade one set of idols and temptations just for another when you get to somewhere new. A location change for Lot's daughters didn't change the idols that they had in their hearts, Right? Idols just crept back in. Family is king. Sex is all. I've got to have kids. This is my everything. Where does that happen in you? Some of us think that moving one day is what we need most. That's what's going to change my circumstances. I'll be happy if I get paid more or if I move or if I have a bigger house or if I have more land from near my family. And to a lesser scale, maybe it'll be things a little bit better. But if we don't address the heart idols and we try to just change our circumstances, those idols will just creep back in and take a new form. So we got to kill it at its root. We don't need change in locations oftentimes as much as we need to change in what we love. The idols that are being formed in our heart. So church, listen, we are being formed by the values in our city. Many good, a lot that are not. And we need to be counterformed, therefore by the values of God's word. We've got to root ourselves in the truthfulness and the promises of God's word so we, end, so we don't end up living like Lot's family who are in the world and of the world. Guys, we've got to be in the word and positively affecting the world, amen? So church, let me ask you a few questions here. This is adapted by one of my 
favorite pastors, Kevin DeYoung, who's a pastor in the Charlotte area where I moved from several years back. He asked these kind of analytical questions like this. He says, church, let me ask you, are you like son, uh, like Lot's son-in-laws? They're dismissive of sin and they're dismissive that God has some sort of hand of discipline or consequence of sin. Church, are you like Lot's son-in-law where you just dismiss sin? It's not big of a deal. You just ignore it. And maybe you dismiss the fact that God will deal with sin. Maybe not in judgment for you, Christian, because he did that on the cross already. But through correction, do you dismiss sin? Or are you like Lot's wife? You're in love with the things of this world and you end up turning to them again and again and again. And that eventually leads you to harm. Are you like Lot's wife? In love with the things of the world, turning it again and again. Or are you like Lot's daughters? Only doing things in the way of the world and you're willing to compromise who you are in your sexuality to get something ultimate. And for them, this was a family. This was kids. This was a legacy. This was a line. Are you willing to compromise for something that you want? Or are you like Lot? You're righteous only in position before God through faith in Jesus, but not righteous in practice. You linger in sin. You compromise your family for the sake of work or others or hidden sexual sins. Are you like Lot or leaping off of this page? Are you seeking to be like Jesus? Are you merciful towards your enemies yet accepting of God's final judgment? Are you trusting in the promise of God's blessing, but also trusting in God's purpose through justice? Like Jesus, do you believe in God's salvation for anyone who turns and trusts in the forgiveness that God can bring and the righteousness that comes? And last, that brings us to our fourth point. As we come to a close, we see this final point, the promise of God's extensive justice and his exceeding grace. This is what God does. Verse 16, so the men, they seize Lot, and his wife, because they're lingering, his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord is merciful to them. God is literally using his angels to bring them out. Christian, if you've come to faith in Christ, it's that God brought you out of where you wanted to be. He gave you the faith. He gave you the desire. He gave you the heart to trust in him. Yes, you need to believe in Christ, but it's because God came to you in your sin and he pulled you out of it by his miraculous grace. That's what we see happen here. The Lord was merciful to him. So he seized them by the hand, just like Christ seizes us in our hearts. And the angels lead them out of the city and they set them outside of the city in safety. Verse 24, then the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. We don't have a lot of time to give you some archeological background to this text, but all to say that there's uh, a, a great magazine called Nature. It's one of the, the highest like scientific magazines, Nature and Science. You go to Nature and you can see a giant article they published saying, was this a volcano? Was this a whatever? Because they've done an excavation in a site that's near this area uh, in the text. And they found that the pottery on the outside was melted, but the inside was intact. Meaning that some sort of hot flash bang of smoke that had to happen that was thousands of degrees that didn't melt the inside, but just the outside. And it burned up all of this stuff. They're like, what, what was this? Some speculate that it was some giant meteor that exploded to two or three miles above the sky and then rained down this fire and sulfur. And so there's excavations that have all this proof on the ground. We don't have a lot of time to unpack all that, but there's some evidence that this was not just parable. This is historical. Verse 25, and so God overthrew these cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Verse 29, so it was that 
when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham in his prayer. And he sent out Lot in the midst of the overflow. This is foreshadowing how God intercedes on our behalf and brings us out of judgment into salvation because of Jesus interceding on behalf. Abraham is doing that with Lot. So let's conclude here. Guys, what is all of chapter 19 trying to get us to understand about us as ourselves, people, and as God as our creator? Guys, we're trying to see here that sin affects everyone, everywhere, in every way, in every area of our life. Sin affects everything. Guys, you can even take people out of Sodom, but you can't take Sodom out of people. Sin affects everything. It affects you, it affects me. Guys, this passage is vividly demonstrating just how righteous God's wrath really is against sin. But guys, do you not see how merciful God's grace was towards Sodom for 25 years, bringing people and warning and offers of forgiveness and how he rescued Lot, even though he wasn't righteous. Yes, it shows God's wrath, but it shows how merciful and gracious God is to anyone, how patient he is. If we would turn and call out to God, and ask for forgiveness and grace and new life by following him. We see here that in rescuing the godly from destruction, this actually foreshadows how God will do this for all who have placed their faith in Christ when the final judgment on earth one day happens, as 2 Peter 2 tells us. This passage shows us that sin twists our desires. And rather than us pursuing God's design, we pursue our desires which always ends up with harmful and heartbreaking results as we've seen. We see this with opposite sex desires in 31 through 32. We see this with same sex desires in verses four and five. And we see this with other desires for comfort and pleasure and excess and a lack of care for the poor in Ezekiel 16. Guys, this passage is not about one sin more than the other. It's about the sin that lives in all of us. The sin that Jesus wants to forgive us from and free us from which is the sin of following our desires rather than God's design for our good and his glory. All of our hearts, church, all of our hearts, friends, resist God in some way. And this passage is revealing the destruction that we bring to our own lives when we let our desires rule rather than God's designs. So friends, please, would you listen to me as I end here? Please, would you see God's mercy in this passage? It's not just the angels that are reaching out through this text. It's Christ standing there ready to grab your heart, seize you by the hand and lead you out of the destruction of your sin and to lead you into the forgiveness and salvation to any who would turn and trust in him. God takes sin seriously on the cross and he also takes his grace and mercy seriously as well. So would you not linger today? Would you not turn back or look back at sin as more desirous? Would you get up and go with Christ? Would you grab his hand by faith and let him lead you towards grace, forgiveness, and salvation and away from this destructiveness and pervasiveness of sin? Church, I'm grateful for you. I know this was not an easy day, not an easy text. I pray that you see today that God is a God of extensive justice, but exceeding in grace towards you. Let's take a moment. Let's pray together.